Um, well, good morning, everybody. I think it's time to start. And thanks again for coming. Uh, I know it's 8.30 and it's Friday. And uh, people are starting to probably head out. I'm going to be heading out uh, later today. And so thank you for, for coming and spending this time with me this morning. Um, I'm actually wanting to have a little bit more conversation today than, than I did yesterday. In fact, I kind of felt bad about that afterwards. Like, man, we should have we had more conversation because I felt like the time we did was really good. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see if we can have more discussion. Um, but let me lead us in a word of prayer, and then, and then we'll, we'll get started. God, we pause this morning and we invite your presence to be uh, with us as we spend some time in study and conversation. <clears throat> Lord, we, we understand that you've called us to the city, to, to urban areas, and, and it looks different for each one of us in the room, and we all come from different contexts, but we're all trying to think through how to, how to be church where we are. And <clears throat> Lord, I just pray that you'd give us some insight and wisdom, and that there'll be something that either I say or something that um, someone in the group says that um, would um, spark something in our hearts that would help us and give us energy to um, to be your leaders and to be your servants as we minister in the city. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. And we say together, Amen. All right, I want to. Um, briefly uh, review uh, what I talked about yesterday just so that we can all be on the same page. So <clears throat> yesterday I kind of made an argument that I think uh, in, our, in our fellowship we need more um, city churches. And I defined what a city church is, that a city church is a, a local body of Christ that is seeking to learn, love, and embrace the city in which it's situated. And so I mentioned that there's three parts to that definition. Number one, a city church is one that's in an urban environment. It's not in a rural. It's not in a suburban place. Um, it's not necessarily inner city, uh, not just a church of the poor, but instead it's, it's a church in an urban environment that's welcoming all of the city, all of the people of the city, so rich and poor and all the diversity in between. Um, I mentioned also that a city church is for the city. It's not against the city. It's not trying to guard itself from the city, but instead it's trying to learn and love the city in various ways. And we looked at some scripture, looked at some text, we looked at some theological <coughs> uh, resources, just trying to make this case that, that we need more churches in the city. Hey, Rep. And, and, and we talked a little bit about that. Uh, and then we spent some time, kind of the latter half of the class, just talking through some contextual urban realities. That if you're in a, in, in a city, and, and when I say city, I'm just talking about where there's a lot of population density, okay? And if you're in that kind of environment, you're going to have to deal with some of these realities, these contextual situations. Number one, city is very diverse. Uh, number two, there's, there's injustice in cities, and it, there's injustice everywhere, but in a city, it's more pronounced. It's right on top of you, right outside your building, <laughs> uh, as it is for us. Uh, number three, context. Every city has a story, and so learning the city's story and being able to, to minister to the city that way. Networks. 
Um, one of the great things about a city is that you've got this physical clustering of all these different kinds of people in different industries and different disciplines all really close together. And so in a city, you can network together. And, and so I need to introduce Janet Johnson, who is here. Raise your hand. Uh, Janet is from Fort Worth. She works for a nonprofit organization called Christian Works for Children, which is a uh, they do counseling, support groups for children and their families that have gone through trauma, divorce, things like that. They're right across the street from our church building. So we network. We work together. And so that, that's just one example of what can happen in a city is you can work with other nonprofit organizations um, that share a common uh, vision and you can do great things together. So thanks for being here. Uh, now, talks about unpredictability. Cities are chaotic. You don't know what's going to happen from day to day, and so there needs to be a flexibility um, as you go through a ministry. Talked about loneliness. Cities are places where people are lonely and they're depressed, and uh, and so that's an opportunity for the church to show relationship. And then finally, we talked about real estate and how real estate in an urban area is so difficult, and we have to think creatively about how we're going to use a real estate. So that's kind of what we talked about yesterday, and what I want to talk about today is I want to think through, okay, how do you, how do you lead a church uh, to, to move into these directions, to be becoming a city church? Uh, I mean, our church is an established church, started in 1892, and uh, had, had a lot of has a lot of traditions, and primarily is kind of a, was kind of a maintenance church, just kind of taking care of one another. So how do you move kind of a maintenance church into a church that's more a church of mission to the city. That's what I want to talk about today. And I want to do it in two parts. Number one, I want to talk about some ministry principles um, that I think we need to cultivate and develop in our churches. And then I want to talk about leadership. And in the middle, I want to have some conversation. So hold me to that, please, um, because I want, to, I want to have some conversation. So how do we cultivate city churches? How do we help established churches transition to the city churches? I want to talk about five ministry principles, and I'm going to walk, walk through these fairly quickly. Uh, number one, we need to think like missionaries rather than consumers. John 17, that's the passage where uh, Jesus prays right before the garden, and he says, as I, am, as I have been sent into the world, so I am sending, so I want them to be sent into the world. He's praying for his disciples, and he's praying that they will be sent people. They are, um, they are to be sent into the world. And so um, that passage and other passages reminds us that each one of us is sent. We are missionaries. Um, that is a part of who we are. And so that's become something that our church, we're really trying to cultivate. That missionaries are not simply someone we send across the ocean, but missionaries are people who are right here, right now. We are missionaries to our neighbor. God has called us to this city, to this neighborhood, to be missionaries. We are sent here. We're trying to cultivate that idea. Oh. Um, do you have a comment? How? How? Well, that's a good question. Um, First of all, it starts by um, teaching and preaching um, about how mission is connected to our identity. And let me, let me illustrate that a little bit. 
So in our Christian colleges, you cannot major in love, right? I mean, I think that'd be pretty cool. I mean, you know, what are you majoring? I'm a major in love. I mean, it'd be a great pickup line, right? Uh, <laughs> um, you know, in our churches, we do not have love deacons. We do not have a love committee normally. I've never heard of a church that has a love committee. Um, a love ministry leader. Um, it may be great if you were the love deacon, right? I'm the deacon over love, you know? <laughs> okay, wh- why? Why can you not do those things? Or why do we not do those things? It's because we believe that love is something that every single person should be about doing. That, that's, that's a part of our identity. And you'll know that we are Christians by our love, right? And so I would argue it's the same way with mission. Yes. That it's not simply something that is required for the specialists or for the committees to do. Mission is something we all do. That we are a body of Christ who are sent into the world. And so I think it starts by preaching that, that message. That it's not that the church has a mission, but God's mission has a church. And so the very uh, center of who we are, our identity, is bound up in the fact that God has a mission to redeem the world, and we're a part of that. And as being a part of that, we're to partner with God in his redemptive mission to city. So one thing that we do at our church is uh, you don't place membership at our church. Um, Because placing membership is, um, well, it's not really biblical. You know, Paul never place membership at you know, the church in Ephesus. At least doesn't say that in the Bible. Um, you know, it's, it's more of a social club or a country club idea. And so what we do at our church is if you're going to join our church, you're going to become a partner in the gospel. Because Paul had partners in the gospel in Philippians 1. He talks about that. And so if you're going to join our church, you're joining the common vi- vision that we have to be sent into the city. You're going to be a, be a partner in that. So we, we try to frame... Our, our, our understanding of who we are, that who we are is that we are sent people. And so we want to equip and help you so that you can be sent in your vocation or in our neighborhood in some way to be about God's mission in the world. And so now this is, this is a completely different shift than the way we normally think about church. Normally the way we think about church is kind of like a mall, um, which malls are going away. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but, you know, you go to the mall and there's something for everybody, right? You know, you've got the, the playground for the kids. You've got the food court when you're hungry. You've got the, the sporting uh, store for, the, for dad. And, and you've got the clothing stores for, for mom and the girls. I mean, there's something for everybody, right? And you go and you spend the day and everybody gets to do their own thing. And, and that's the way we've thought about church, is that church should be a place where, where it's something for everybody, and so we're going to provide all these different ministries for all these different groups of people. And they're going to come and they're going to spend the whole day and everybody's going to have a good time. And they're going to consume ministry. And so we, we produce the ministry and they consume it. And if, and if, we're, if the ministries that we're producing aren't good enough, we're, what, what happens to people? What do they do? They go to the better mall down the street, right? Okay. So this is a completely shift from that. It's just saying, we're not thinking about church like a mall. That's not what church is. Church is, is, is a group of people who are sent by God into the world to be a part of his mission. So we're missionaries rather than consumers. So it's a shift in mindset. It's getting the church to realize, I'm not coming to receive. 
I'm coming to join and give, to join a group of people who are on mission and to be a part of that. So it's that shift in mindset. Comment? No, I was stretching my head. Oh, okay. Sorry. Um, all right, let's move on. Principle number two. I'm going to go, I'm going to run through all five of these and then I want us to discuss them. Principle number two. Um, loving people over tradition. You know, Mark 3 is the story where Jesus heals the withered man on the Sabbath day. Um, and if you read that story, the, the Pharisees are watching Jesus. They're watching to see what he's going to do. And Jesus knows they're watching him. And, yet this, and, no, and he knows that if he heals this man, it's going to break the traditions of the fathers on the Sabbath. And he goes ahead and he heals him. Why? Because he says in the text, is it right to harm or to heal? Should I, should I kill or should I, should I not give life? Should I give life? And, uh, and so we see Jesus, he loved that man who had a shriveled hand. He loved him more than the traditions of the Sabbath day. And so I, that story has spoken to me that if we're going to be a church of the city, a church on mission in the city, I've got to love people over my traditions. Notice this. I say most evangelical churches are middle class in culture and hold to middle class values. But what about people who do not fit? This is, part, this is the problem about being a church of the city. If I'm going to welcome everybody from the city, there's going to be people who don't fit into the middle class uh, you know, segment. They're going to look different. They're going to smell different. They're going to act different. They're going to worship different. Um, and, and it's going to make people a little bit uncomfortable. And can I, can I, can we cultivate a spirit that says, we're going to, we're going to love you more than our, our traditions or what we're comfortable with? Can, I'm going to love you more than that. Can we cultivate that? And one of my favorite stories um, from our church about that is uh, we had we had someone who came to our church who was struggling with uh, drugs and and they had uh, it was a lady and she had scars up and down her arm from where she had shot up heroin and she was like really embarrassed by that um, because most people don't have scars there and uh, she was sitting next to an older lady at our church and was trying to kind of cover up you know cover up her arms and the lady next to her was an older lady. She looked at her and she said, don't worry about that. Jesus has scars too. Now, now immediately when that happened, she felt like she belonged. Okay? And that older lady was loving her over tradition. Caring, caring more about her than our traditions. That's principle number two. Principle number three. Uh, choosing faith over fear. Oh boy. Um, get me started here. Numbers 14. Numbers 14 is the passage where you have the 12 spies that go into the land of Canaan. And they come back, and Joshua and Caleb say, hey, we can do this. Land's good, we can do this. And then you got the other 10 spies, and what do they say? They're giants. There's no way we can do this, right? And Joshua, Caleb, and Moses said, no, 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 we can do this. You know, don't, don't give up on me. You know, we can do this. And you remember what the ten spies, what the, the group does, the Israelites do 
when Moses, Joshua, and Caleb <coughs> encourage them, no, no, we can do this. You know what happens next? It says they pick up stones and they're ready to stone Moses. Um, what happened in that story is those ten spies had a perception, a perception of what they thought the enemy was going to be. And that perception created fear, and that fear created anger. Okay? That happens in our churches. When, you, when you're in an urban area, there is a lot of perception of fear. And you see people that look different than you. You, you hear stories in the news. Uh, you hear things about neighborhoods. And, it, and you get this perception that, oh, that, that, that's, that's something really scary. That's something really bad. And, and it creates fear. Uh, let me give you an example. So a part of our story is that about seven or eight years ago, we moved into the urban neighborhood of our church building. Um, at the time, it was kind of a transitional neighborhood. Um, now it's a, actually a very wealthy neighborhood because everybody's moving back into the city and the property values have gone up. <clears throat> but at the time, it was a transitional neighborhood, and we decided to send our children to the, uh, the neighborhood public school, which at the time was uh, an improvement-required campus, a Title I school. <clears throat> it was kind of, a, kind of a challenging school. And I was, I was at, a, at a, uh, a park, and I, my kids were playing. This was in a different part of the city. And there was a lady who came and sat next to me. She was kind of a grandmotherly type of lady. And she said, oh, you know, is your, is your son getting ready to go to school? And I said, yeah, actually he is. He's going to be in kindergarten this fall. She said, oh, wonderful. And she said, uh, where's, where's he going to go to school? And, uh, and I named the name of the public school where, where he was going to go. And when I said that, that name, she, she turned like that to me. Like, I don't know why you're acting like that, and I don't know why you even care. Um, but then she said, I substituted at that school one time, never again. I'm like, well, thank you very much. <laughs> I didn't really want your opinion about it. But, you know, it, it was a perception. It was a perception. And perceptions create fear. And, and so somehow we've got to... We have to break through those perceptions. We have to break through them and show that a lot of times our perception is not reality. Right. My kids have gone to that school and have, a, have had a great education there. And they have been fine. They're not messed up. <laughs> At least I don't think they are. Um, you know, a lot of times our perceptions are not reality and we have to be willing to break through that and follow God and trust God. Um, trust God in ministry and trust God and welcoming people. There is nothing that kills mission and mercy faster than fear. There is nothing that kills mission and mercy faster than fear. People get afraid, and ministry stops immediately. And so it's important that we are preaching and teaching. We are not a people of fear. You know, Paul said, I didn't, you know, I don't have a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, self-control. One of my Favorite stories along this line is uh, Matthew 14, where Jesus is walking on the water, and Peter and the apostles see him, and Peter says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come. And, um, and Jesus says, come. Now, at that moment, what is the safest place 
that Peter should be. When Jesus said, come, what is, where is the safest place? In the, in the arms of Jesus. That's right. Even though it doesn't make sense for him to get out of the boat and walk on the water, when Jesus says, come, the safest place to be is in the arms of Jesus, being obedient to Jesus. And we have to, we have, to have that perspective when it comes to ministry. If Jesus has called us to this neighborhood, Jesus has called us to this ministry, Jesus has called us to love this group of people, then we better do that. That is safer than anything else. All right, number four. Uh, seek discernment over planning. Discernment over planning. So Acts 17 is the story where Paul goes to Athens. And when he goes to Athens on his missionary journey, what's the first thing he does? Does he? The first thing he does is it, that he passes out flyers. Nope. No. <laughs> Do they even have flyers? Back um, is the first thing he does to um, to begin preaching and teaching? Nope. The first thing he does is he observes. He walks around the city and he observes. You know, so when you when you move to Chicago, the first thing you do, you know, walk around the city and observe. You know, that's what Paul did. And when, and when he did that, um, two things happened. Number one, the passion for ministry developed. It was because of what he saw about the idols that he said, I- I've got to do something about that. I've, I've got to preach. I've got to let them know about Jesus. And so, you know, whenever, whenever your passion for ministry gets low, here's what you do. Go walk around your city. Go observe your city. Remind <coughs> yourself of the sin problem in your city and the idols in your city because that will fuel your passion for ministry. The second thing that happened was that he found the entry point. He found the entry point for mission. And so as he speaks at the Areopagus, um, he says, um, I see that among all of your altars there's this altar to the unknown God, right? So that becomes his entry point. And so as we observe and as we do discernment, we're going to find entry points of, okay, here's, here's where I can, I can bring the gospel. Here's where I can, we can step our foot in and, and, and do ministry. And so discernment provides that. You know, it's very easy and tempting to run the church or lead the church um, as if it's a nonprofit organization, as if it's a business to where what we are concerned about is the bottom line or the numbers or um, money and facilities and staffing needs and all those kinds of things. But the church is not a nonprofit organization, even if the IRS tells us that. The church is not a nonprofit organization. The church is a community of the Holy Spirit. And if we are a community of the Holy Spirit, we need to be open to where God is leading us. We need to be discerning about where God is, is taking us. And so, and so what I want to do is I want to cultivate with our ministers and elders a, a spirit, an attitude that says, okay, let's be open to where God, God is leading us. So one thing that we do is in our staff meeting, we begin every staff meeting by everybody answering the question, where have you seen God at work? Because we want to have a perspective where we are attentive to what God is doing. God's at work. And what is God doing? And what does God want to do? Um, what we've also noticed at our church is that 
some of the best ministries of our church are, are in place, not because the elders and ministers got together and said, okay, we need to do a ministry to this group of people, and so boom, let's do it. But instead, someone from the congregation felt a call. And as they felt that call, we rallied around them and said, hey, God's leading you, and we want to we follow that. We want to go with that. And so I think this is another powerful principle, having an openness and attentiveness to the work of God. Discer- I almost tripped. Discernment over planning. All right, principle five. Pursue self-sacrifice over self-preservation. You know, Mark 8, Jesus says, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Um, if you're going to lose, if you're going to try to save your life, then you're going to lose it. But if you lose it for the sake of the gospel, you'll actually save it. You know, that's not just true about you and me individually. That's true about our church. Now think about that for a second. We don't think about that verse in a communal way. But as a church, we are to sacrifice ourselves. We are to deny ourselves as a church. Um, and, and we should deny ourselves for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the world. Um, and normally that's not the way churches operate. Normally the way churches operate is... We are here for ourselves. And, and we're, we have all these resources. We have a building. We have vans and buses and, 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 and ministers, and they're all here for us. And, and if, you, if you disagree with me, just look at your bulletin. Um, most church bulletins, it's all, you know, all the activities, it's all about internal things. And, and Mark 8 says that that's really not what we're to be about. We're to be about self-sacrifice. We're about denying self for the gospel and for the world. And so we want to find ways in which we can, in which we can give of ourselves. Um, one example of this that, that where I really kind of saw this was uh, several years ago at our church, we had just renovated our fellowship hall and, and you know, fixed the, the walls and the tiles in the ceiling and everything looked really really nice well that summer we were hosting a a summer feeding program for children and families in the neighborhood and it was a connection with the food bank and it was a way for children and families to get a healthy meal in the summer while school was out and so we had i don't know about 20 kids uh, at our church at that time eating lunch and they were playing around they were playing with some kind of ball and, and they were throwing that ball up and it was it was hitting hitting those tiles and there was a part of me that was like stop it (laughs) stop throwing that ball around stop doing get out of here we have just replaced all of these tiles. don't you see how beautiful they look we don't want you messing with them right well and then I caught myself hang on a second why did we get this place renovated in the first place was it just for us was it just for me to sit back and say, wow, isn't this such a pretty church? No, we renovated it so that it could be used for the sake of the gospel. And so if there are children from our neighborhood who are playing in this place, yeah, they might be a little bit disorderly and they might need a little bit of boundaries. But if they're playing in this place, praise God for that, right? That's who we are. We pursue self-sacrifice over self-preservation. Now, 
this is, this is tough. And if you're going to be a church in the city, you are going to wrestle with this. Because you're going to have people in your church who have an expectation of church as a consumer. And they're going to say, well, why are we not having the, the children's ministry that this other church has? And, and why are we not having the youth ministry like the, this other church has? And, and, and you're going to hear people say, you're doing a lot of things for, for those kids or for those teens or for those people, but what about us? You're, you're going to hear these words. I've heard these words. <laughs> and you're going to hear this, this dichotomy between us and them. And you have to, at that moment, remind people it's not about us and them. It's about we. It's about <coughs> we're a community of disciples who are trying to follow the call of Jesus. And that means we join and we give. We join and we give. Um, we don't just sit back and receive. All right, I'm going to stop there for a moment. And comments, yeah. What was number four? Number four was uh, discernment uh, over planning. Discernment over planning. Comments. What, which one of these five principles really resonates, resonates with you or, or questions that you might have about one of these five? Yes. I have a question over principle number two. Uh-huh. Loving people over tradition. And although you mentioned tradition in terms of culture, uh, how about tradition in terms of the church culture? Okay. Right. Like, like instrumental music, like women's uh, in leadership, that kind of stuff. I, I, and I bring a, a perfect example. We have a very, very small Hispanic group. There is another very small Hispanic group that belong to a different denomination. They had some issues. They got kicked out. Uh -huh. But they are instrumental. They came to us and told us, hey, we would like to join forces with you, and either you rent us your room or we become part of your church. Mm. Uh, we're in discussions because we are non-instrumental. Right. And uh, so what would be the solution to tell them, come over, and they say, well, our members want instrumental music. And I'm trying to give them some ideas how they can do it. But some people say, well, you know, in the building, you don't want any instruments at all, period. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying, well, you know, how about, can they have meetings at home and they can do whatever? Um, and if that's the case, what's the difference? Mm -hmm. So we're dealing with that. That's a tradition that we have. Yeah, OK. Well, that's a, that's a difficult question. Did you have a comment? Um, In Bakersfield, uh -huh. we have two services for our for our scene. Thirty minutes instrumental, and before we ever had the instrumental, one of our elders got up and had several lessons on why it is a tradition in the old as well as the new testament. So now we have two services, one instrumental, not, not two services, one, one song service divided into two groups, one 30 minutes of instrumental, 30 minutes of <coughs> power. You know, I think one of the reasons why 
when I was talking about that principle that I focused more on cultural traditions rather than worship is in my experience at Southside, the cultural traditions are um, a much bigger deal. I mean, our, our worship is very traditional. And, um, <coughs> but we baptize a lot of people. And, and, it's, and it's, it's because um, unchurched people, um, though a lot of the worship issues that we, that we wrestle with, unchurched people, they don't get it. And they're not interested in those things. What they're interested in is, am I welcome here? And, and a lot of times, because of our cultural traditions, um, they, they don't feel welcome. They don't feel welcome. And, and, and so trying to find a way to cultivate this spirit of, I'm going to love you where you are, and, and I'm going to welcome you, um, I think, to me, is, a, is the bigger issue. It's the bigger issue. Yes? So, you know, to some of the things you were talking about, you know, being a sent people, we're all missionaries, um, you know, uh, mission, loving people, tradition, and everything. One thing our church has done, and, and it's been a challenge to some people, but they get it, is we, you know, instead of our traditional Wednesday night Bible study, we have Bible studies, but they're going on neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. and, because we don't work to go out to the people, not expect them to come. And, and so we got to get away from this building-centric idea of church, which is fine for us middle-class people who have adequate transportation. Right, and yeah. Everything. But, you know, college students, many of them don't have transportation. Uh, and, you know, the other other groups that will really reach out loving on um, is people um, section 8 poverty right they don't um, and then um, you know the other I don't want to make it sound like it's easy to make this transition from uh, consumer to mission oriented church but one thing you're seeking discernment over planning tell churches we have one job and that's to follow Jesus and if we'll listen for where God is working and join God in that work as followers of Jesus church will be alright may not look like we thought it might turn out to be but it will be church yeah and so yeah. That's, it, it's, the challenge isn't so much Doing a challenge is, is breaking that mental barrier that, that opens new imagination for, you know, to do that. Yeah. We, you know, one thing that we, we've talked about our church is the church of the lizard versus the church of the frog. I, 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 got, this me, I got this metaphor from somebody um, <laughs> that the church of the frog is... You know, a frog sits back and waits for the fly to come around, and when the fly comes around, it just whips out its big, long tongue and, you know, brings it in. But a lizard, it, it doesn't wait. It, it goes. It goes to find its food. And so, you know, the church of the frog is, is the church that sits back in the building 
and, and, and waits. Okay, who's going to, and, if, and if, if a fly comes by, we're going to stick out our big tongue and bring, bring him in. The church of the lizard says, no, we're, we're sent. We're, we're going to go to the people. And I think you're right. Um, just because you have a building and a sign, people aren't coming. They're not coming. And so what that's looked like for, for us is we invested in, in vans. And so we have like seven vans. We have a fleet of vans. It drives our facilities guy crazy because, you know, they all always need oil change or something. And we just, we sent out those vans and we're picking people up because you're right. People have transportation issues. Um, it's hard to get places. It's hard to, you know, get where you need to go at the right time. So we send out vans and pick people up that way. And that takes a lot of work and it's labor intensive, but, but we're going to have to go to the people. Yeah. We're going to have to go to the people. Yeah. Do you think that's key? Because one of the things that we have kind of struggled with in Wichita is, you know, we have quite a few ministries to people, and, and uh, even our benevolence guy, who's always so good at it. I mean, he's just, he meets with people and sits down with them. It's not just a quick conversation, and he, you know, and they're obviously touched by it, but we almost never get anybody coming back, mm-hmm. you know, and, and we don't make that a, a, a you know, a requirement of our helping them, but, but of course we always share at the end, if you want to come or, right. you know, and you're welcome here. And, but almost always that they never come back. So I wonder, do you find that because in the poor communities, transportation is such an issue that the busing is key to getting people? In? I, I think so. Yeah. I think it's key because, um, like for example, uh, there's a family there's a family that comes to our church. They're, they're, they're partners in the gospel, as we say. Um, they got one car. They have three grandkids. They live in the projects. They have three grandkids. They've got another family that they like to bring to church with them, but they got one car. Well, like on Wednesday nights, uh, the husband is working all the time. You know, he's working at strange hours because he works like at, you know, some kind of warehouse job. And so when he's got the car, I mean, they're stranded. They, they cannot come to church. Um, and so we send a band and pick them up. Now that's that's an example of, of a family that's actually a partner in our church. And you imagine people who are unchurched. I mean, they're in that situation even more so. And so I think so with especially with poor people or college students, um, older folks who, who are going to be unable to to come on their own or or are not going to be as motivated to to find the way. Yeah. You know to to say, hey, we're going to send this van. If you're here, you can come and, and be a part. And so we've grown that van ministry to where, I mean, we're sending out about six or seven vans. And, and, and people, people are becoming a part of the church or becoming a part of the community <coughs> through that. Yeah. And I'll just say that in one sense, this, this idea of one has been part of our DNA. I'm almost remember playing churches we we said um, we'd have services over at the nursing home. We know, you know, the, the folks living in the nursing home because their physical health they're not going to be. So we have services over at the nursing home. We just never translate that we can do that same in, in other other places. Other you know, yeah, that, that's exactly right. Thinking like a missionary, right? You know. Good comment. Other, other thoughts. So what, uh, what, what are some other ways that you um, 
help make the connection of just providing services for people and actually have been able to make the connection for them to come to church and are there any other keys? Well, I mean, there, there is a lot of fear and suspicion. Um, you know, if someone's, if someone's coming and, and, and they're receiving some kind of service or they're, they're in a low income, I mean, there's a lot of fear and suspicion about, am I even wanted in this church? You know, do, do people even care? Is there going to be anybody like me? I don't have clothes to dress up and look nice. You know, I mean, I hear those kinds of things all the time. And so trying to find ways to break down those barriers. Um, and, and a lot of times it, it, it takes someone who, who is kind of, can be kind of like a little bit of a leader and who can say, oh, I go to this church. I love this church. Come, come with me. And so here's where you kind of have to think missionally. And it's kind of finding an ambassador uh, who, who can kind of be the missionary to that group of people. And so that family I was mentioning to you earlier who live in the projects, uh, I, I went and visited them one day with my son, and we were passing out flyers for, for a children's event that we were having. And, and she was going around passing out to all of her neighbors and all the kids and everything and inviting me like, I, I go to this church, and it's a great church. You need to come with me. And she was doing all that. And we get back in the car, and my son uh, looked at me and said, you know, She's kind of like our ambassador in this apartment complex. I said, you're exactly right. You know, she, she's our missionary to this apartment complex. And so wouldn't it be great if we saw our church community as kind of missionaries in the different neighborhoods and to the different groups of people that we're trying to reach out to? So any way that we can kind of break down that fear and suspicion, I think, is, is critical. There's a lot of concern in California about liability, yeah, transporting people. Um, so that's a challenge. But, yes. but beyond that, how do you, I, I can imagine the complexity of transporting people. How do you work that out? I, I can imagine vans going out coming back empty. How, how do you, how do you <laughs> get that organized so that there's a relatively steady stream of people who are being transported? Well, um, I don't know. <laughs> it is complicated. I, I will make a couple of comments. I mean, you brought up liability, and man, we wrestle with that. You know, okay, what is, what is the safe thing to do? People say that, you know, and that goes back to my principle of faith over fear. Um, we have an idol of safety in, our, in the United States. We bow down to that idol, and, and so we have to try to remember our insurance companies do not determine how we do ministry. Jesus does. And, and that, boy, that is like really hard to people to get on board with that, you know? <laughs> but so we wrestle with, okay, what is, what is the prudent thing to do? But also uh, we want to be following Jesus. And so let's, let's navigate that. So we've had a lot of conversation about that in our leadership. And, and, and so I think that's one step is just really wrestling as leaders. You know, how do we balance wisdom and faith? How do we balance that? Um, the second thing is, yeah, we, we, we try to be systemic. We try to have a, you know, a plan of where all the keys are. We try to have, know who's, who's driving which van and, and they have a route that they take and, and it's a route that they go on and they do that route every Sunday. And if that route <coughs> starts, uh, not being effective, then we're going to change that route. You know, so we we do try to have a system, but 
Um, I mentioned yesterday that one of the parts of the city, it's unpredictable, right? And so, so we have Sundays where it's like, I took the van out and there was nobody there. And, and then some Sundays I took the van out. And we needed two of them. Where you know, and it, so it's it's kind of there's a, there's a there's a little bit of a craziness, a holy craziness, <laughs> to to uh, ministry in the city in that way. Yeah. How, how much do you find your role as the minister of the congregation? Are, are you heavily involved in the organizing of a lot of this, or do, or do you mainly give the vision from just articulating a board? What, what do you see your role as? Um, are you heavily involved in organizing all these things, or are you more no, you know, because I, sometimes I feel like um, it can be a little overwhelming if you're trying to, you know, if one person is trying to organize. So I'm just yeah. curious how that works in your church. Yeah, and I think, I think some of that comes down to giftedness yeah. and what your gift set is. Um, I'm not really great with details, yeah. and so um, I'm better at vision casting and, and kind of promoting and encouraging people, um, but I'm not really great at details, so um, you know, someone else kind of take care, takes care of the details, yeah. and um, I, I would say our church as a whole is probably not very good at details, <laughs> and, and, and I think part of that is, is the context, our urban context, in that... Um, like I said, the unpredictability of the city, the, the flexibility that is needed, the openness to what God is doing, where God is leading. We, we, we try not to get ourselves tied down too much to a system, right? Because um, we're not a nonprofit organization, right? We're the community of the Holy Spirit. So we want, we want to be nimble. There's a book out there called Nimble Church. I haven't read it, but I like that title. You know, you know we want to be nimble. Um, so I, I'm not good as in terms of like the organization of the details. And so I try to I try to step back and empower somebody else. So was some of that already in place when you came in or well, yeah, some of it. Some of it was. Some of it, but we've expanded it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, with the last uh, fifteen minutes or so, I want to talk a little bit more about leadership. And your question actually leads into what I'm gonna talk about a little further. <clears throat> because if you're going to implement some of these principles and, and, and become the city church we're talking about, um, we've we got to talk through leadership because um, the church is not going to rise above its leaders. And, and so we, we have to think through how the leaders are going to, how do the leaders lead the church in this way? Um, some of you might be aware that this was a part of my uh, doctorate dissertation as I, I studied elders and ministers and their relationship in leading a church in mission and what does that look like and, and what I did was there was a, uh, a profile in the Christian Chronicle called Churches That Work maybe you've seen that they don't do it anymore but for about 2005 to about 2014 or 15 they would highlight a church or two that they called their a church that works and what they meant by that was it's a church that's biblical a church that's united in a church that's evangelistic and engaging its neighborhood. And they highlighted about 25 churches over that 10 to 10, 11 year period. And so I took those 25 churches and I did a survey of the elders and ministers in those churches, asked them, how do you understand your roles? How do you lead? What do you do together? What are your practices? Um, had over 100 responses to that. And then, uh, then I, from those responses, I narrowed down those 25 churches to four, and, and I visited those four. 
and I interviewed the preachers there, interviewed the elders there, sat in on their worship services, just tried to understand more about them. Now, those four churches were not all urban. Um, two of them were, and then one was rural and one was suburban. So I kind of got a little flavor for all of it. But from all of that research, there were kind of five leadership principles that kind of rose to the surface um, that elders and ministers need to be doing to lead their church in the mission. So I want to I want to run through those five principles. I got to do it pretty quickly. Um, but if you want more information about this, I wrote an article on it. Um, so principle number one was that elders were nurturing pastors. So in these churches, the elders functioned as shepherds and and. You know, every eldership wants to be known as shepherds. That's one thing I found out. And so I tried to probe that a little more and say, okay, how do you shepherd? What, what does it mean to you um, that you're a shepherd? And what I found out was what it meant is spending a lot of time with the people, spending a lot of time with the church, walking alongside the church, listening to the church, being present with the church, that that's, that's how they shepherded. But it wasn't just that they were pastors, it's that they were nurturing pastors. Nurturing in the sense that, um, that they were empowering. They were empowering, that they were, they were pushing the church into ministry. And, and, and they were providing a level of stability in an unpredictable, unpredictable environment of a city you need some stability, and it was the elders that provided that stability in these churches. They were nurturing pastors for the flock. Um, they nurtured, they stabilized, and they empowered the body journey alongside her. Principle number two. Um, the ministers were missional catalysts. Now, one thing I learned in this study is that ministers often struggle with role ambiguity. Um, we don't really know, okay, what is my primary responsibility? Is my primary responsibility to pastor the people or is my primary responsibility to evangelize the city? I don't know if you've ever felt that ambiguity. I feel that ambiguity. That ambigu ambiguity goes all the way back to the 1800s, maybe even all the way to the first century. But, um, uh, but we struggle with knowing, okay, what, what is my responsibility? What I found in these churches is that the ministers understood their role as a missional catalyst. That their role uh, was not just to be a pastor. Their role was to gently prod, and, that, and that's, that's one of the preachers used that term, to gently prod the leaders to look and to see the mission, to see the city. And so someone in your church has to have eyes to see the city. <clears throat> and, and, if, and if one of you doesn't do it, then probably nobody's going to do it in your church. And what's going to happen is your church is just going to try to take care of one another. Someone has to say, hey, there's, there's needs out here. There's a city out here. And, and, and we need to be a part of what God's doing in the city. And the minister is that role. He's to be that missional catalyst. There's different ways we can do this. Uh, through storytelling, equipping, administrating, or aligning. Storytelling. If you want to get your church to be in a church on mission faster than anything else, start telling stories. Start telling stories of what God is doing in the neighborhood, in the city. Start telling stories about how God is transforming people. 
start telling stories. Stories like, um, you know, I mentioned yesterday that uh, Cook Children's Hospital, which is a hospital in our neighborhood, um, had over 150 uh, suicide attempts from teenagers uh, in 2017. So every two days in our neighborhood, there's a teenager attempting suicide. I mean, that's a powerful story, right? And, and so you start telling things like that from the pulpit, eventually people are going to say, what do we do about this? And that's where you say, let's engage in ministry. That's where you become that missional cast. So storytelling, equipping. Equipping would be like discipleship and encouraging people to find their gifts and use them. Administrating, moving the church agenda along. Someone has to like move the agenda along, right? Otherwise, it's just going to always stay where it is. Aligning, um, aligning is, is bringing the church around a common vision. So the way we do this at Southside is we have a theme every year. And our theme, it's, it's, not, it's not a static theme. It's not like our theme's the book of James. Like, okay, that's not very motivating. Okay? <laughs> it's a theme of where we want to become as a body. And so this year our theme is we want to become a gospel community. That's, that's our theme. So we choose a theme and we try to bring the church around that. Number three, uh, the elders and ministers are a team. Are a team. If you've got a minister who's a missional catalyst and you've got elders who are nurturing pastors who provide stability, there's going to be some tension. And the way you hold that tension together is by, them be, by the elders and ministers being a team. And team in the sense of where there's mutual respect and trust, where it's not employer and employee, but it's where we all, we all recognize what each of us bring to the table and we respect one another. Elders tend to be older, and they tend to have a longer history in the church. Ministers tend to, tend to be younger and more trained. We both bring something to the table. And so develop, cultivating a mutual trust and respect, how do you do that? You do it through longevity. Over 75% of ministers have not been at their church for 10 years. The longer you're at your church, the greater sense of team you're going to have. You do it through time together, um, not just in a meeting together, but in informal time together as ministers and elders, and you do it through having a sense of family, where you actually believe that your elders are your brothers yeah. in your family. Number four, <clears throat> wilderness. This was kind of surprising to me. But in all the churches that I researched, they all had a moment of wilderness. They all had a time where it just, church wasn't going well. Um, whether it was a minister who had a moral failure or an elder who was a bully or um, some issue that the church was struggling with, they had a time of wilderness where they were just kind of wondering and, and, and trying to figure things out. What set these churches apart was what they did in the wilderness. What they did in the wilderness was not to react and to say, well, let's just change everything up. Let's just blow this thing up and redo it all. That's not what they did. What they did was they used this as a time to listen to God and to one another. Listen to God and one another. And what they found later on is that their time in the wilderness was actually a time of preparation for future ministry. And so we have to realize as leaders, we're going to have times in the wilderness. We don't need to react. We just need to listen during that time. 
the number five, uh, missional identity, um, that all these churches, they had an understanding of who they were and what God had called them to be in their city, in their neighborhood. A lot of churches think that who they are is to get ready for next Sunday. These churches had a broader vision. We have a broader vision and a broader identity. And the way you develop that is by doing three things. You listen to scripture, you listen to the city or your context, and you listen to one another. And, and kind of these two days, that's what we've done, right? We listened to scripture yesterday, Jeremiah 29, Isaiah 61, Luke 19. We've listened to the city, talked about all the city contextual realities. And we've listened to one another. And when you do those three things, what emerges is a missional identity. And, and when, when a church has that missional identity, you can always tell because people start to say, this is who we are. We had, a, we had an elders meeting about a year, year and a half ago. And there was a couple families that was getting nervous because of their perception that our recovery ministry was growing and they were perceiving that to be a, a scary thing and they were getting nervous about that and they wanted to come meet with the elders, they wanted to have more security, they wanted to talk about safety concerns and all this kind of stuff. So we were trying to, again, it's a balance. We're trying to balance that. We're trying to think through what's wise, what's faithful, what's wise, what's faithful. But after a while in this conversation, finally one of the elders just stopped and said, listen, if you're uncomfortable being at a church where there are people in recovery, you're just going to have to go to another church because this is who we are. Yes. And, and when he said that, I wanted to stand up and applaud. <laughs> you know, when was the last time that an elder has done something like that to say, this is who we are. This is our missional identity that God has called us to. And so that, that is the fifth principle. Do they stay? Huh? Did they stay? They do not stay. Okay. <laughs> you know, sometimes that's okay. You know, and it, to be honest, it was painful. Uh, but we've got to be faithful to the Lord. Yes. And get this. So, yes, yeah, so they ended up leaving. There was another family that ended up leaving over the, some of the same concerns. And that all happened last year. And last year we had the highest attendance we've ever had than since I've been there. So, not that attendance is the most important thing, but it, it can be a sign of, of blessing. And, and I think I took that to say, you know, if we can just be faithful. And that's hard to do sometimes. Um, God's going to bless us. Let me offer one final story. We have about two minutes left. Let me give you a note of hope. Um, I told you a little bit about our church. So, started in 1892. It was in a period of decline. It was declining in the 80s and 90s, and there and it was declined a lot. And it declined a lot. In the 50s, I've heard stories that there was about six or seven hundred people at our church 
it, it declined eventually all the way down to about 250. Um, and there were three things that changed the trajectory of our church. Number one, the elders decided to stay. They said, we are an urban church and we're going to stay here. We're not moving. We're going to figure this thing out. We're going to follow the Lord. The Lord has placed us here. He's called us to the city, and we're going to stay here. That was number one. Number two, we had a church split. And church splits are terrible, and they're hurtful. And it was, this was in the 90s. But what that church split did is it taught our church we need to have more grace, and we need to be focused externally. We're, we're too internally focused, and that's why we're fighting. We need to be externally focused. Number three, what happened was, at the time, this was in the 90s, at the time, across the street from the church was a drug and alcohol program for women and dependent children run by the Salvation Army. And one Sunday morning, one of those women walked across the street and came to church. She wanted to come to church. She came to church. She walked into one of our Bible classes. She threw down her pack of cigarettes, and she looked at the Bible and said, okay, tell me what this book has to say about what I'm going through. Now, you want to shake up a Bible class? That's going to shake up a Bible class. <laughs> and, and it opened our eyes as a church that there was a lot of people right across the street that needed the Lord Jesus. And here we are struggling with whatever worship traditions we've got when there's, there are women over here that need Jesus. And that started our addiction recovery ministry. But it did more than that. It, it opened our eyes to the mission of the city. And, that, and that, was, that was the turning point. That was the turning point. And, uh, and other ministries have developed and cultivated, and we've, and we've experienced some incline, and, and, it, and it's been wonderful to be a part of that. But our, our brand is, is our steeple. It's on everything we do. It's on our bulletin. It's on our website. It's everywhere. And the reason is because in the 90s, as we were starting to minister to those ladies across the street, we were getting our, the light in our steeple worked on. The light bulb had gone out. We were getting it fixed. And uh, one of our church ladies went over to lead a Bible study, and the ladies at the Salvation Army said, hey, what's wrong with the steeple? What, 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 what happened to the steeple? And said, oh, no, no problem. We're just getting it fixed. It, we're getting it fixed. And uh, I said, oh, good. Because when we pray at night, we turn to that steeple, and the light of that steeple gives us hope. And that's become our identity. We want to be a church that has a light from Jesus that gives hope to the city. And so my prayer for all of you guys is that your churches will be a light that brings hope to your cities. Thank you guys for coming. Thank you, Steve.